Okay, on the count of three, say a name that makes you think of Christmas. One, two, three. Charles Sinterklaas. Chris Kringle. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I knew that would happen. One individual I'd hope to be denominated just now is a suitable place to start this installment of Scattered Curiosities. Not to discount any of the agnomens my guest voices proclaimed a moment ago, and we will get to all of them, but one can argue, and many already have, that the holiday as we know it would not exist without the inimitable Englishman that invented Christmas, Charles Dickens, whose life we covered extensively in our episode What the Dickens Came from the Pen of John Shakespeare's Son. So I'll refer you there for a more complete biography. But Dickens might not have ever written the cautionary tale of a greedy old miser pinching pennies on coal to warm his benumbed counting house pending a frostbound English snowstorm, changing his behavior towards his doting nephew Fred and destitute clerk with a special needs child only after being haunted by the phantasm of his seven years deposed chain-anchored business partner Jacob and the offerings of three wise guys from the past, present, and yet to come? were it not for the Little Ice Age, or LIA. Now, there are manifolds of different studies that demarcate the epoch in question. But Charles Dickens was born amid one of the pinnacle intense freezes, and his fundamental Christmases were extremely snowy, affecting his writing and why we fondly dream of white Christmases. Charles peppers the scenery of a Christmas carol with descriptions of the harsh winter and Ebenezer Scrooge's personification of that climate. The Little Ice Age affected the Northern Hemisphere between the 13th and 19th centuries, when Europe found that it could no longer rely on toasty summer junctures. Hyperborean califactions were also experienced in North America, while England and the Netherlands saw their rivers and canals stiffened to the point where skating upon them became a common activity that embedded itself in the culture and artwork emerging from what has been called the Frigid Golden Age for the Dutch Republic. The adoration of wintry scapes in the course of LIA correlate directly with NASA's calculations on the peak gelid periods of 1609 to 1627, 1640 to 1660, and 1780 to 1810. With Great Britain celebrating the River Thames Frost Fair for the duration of its absoluteness. Scattered Curiosity, famed violin maker Antonio Stradivari constructed his one-of-a-kind instruments within the boundaries of the LIA, and some theorize the glacial weather made the wood he used denser, giving his pochettes a particular resonance that cannot ever fully be replicated. Volcanic activity is one of the major components that contributed to the LIA. Massive blasts in 1257, 1268, 1275, 1284, 1580, 1600, 1641, 1660, and 1783 took a toll on the planet, and the eruption of Tambora in 1815 begat the year without a summer when snow fell on northern Europe and New England in June and July. You see, volcanic ash blocks the sun's radiation, which can chill the planet for up to two years. Once in the atmosphere, sulfur dioxide turns to acid, which reflects sunlight before it reaches the surface. There are also the added elements of orbital forcing, low solar activity, change of ocean currents, 
and D slash re forestation as a result of the lower population numbers incurred from the bubonic plague and disease spread to the Americas by way of European intervention. The forests that had been cleared for farming were reclaimed by nature, abating the climate. Such dry, frozen conditions gave rise to famine, bread riots, hypothermia, and allowed contagion to thrive. As temperatures lowered, crime levels and scapegoating rose. The brunt of finger-pointing went to Jews who were accused of tainting water supplies, and frequency of witch trials are unswervingly related to NASA's figures of icebox intensity in this time span. People believed they were being castigated by God because of mankind's evil ways that could only be expunged by a life of devoutness that punished those who angered the Almighty. The area that is now modern-day Germany banned drinking, gambling, and women of ill repute, while other nations prohibited sex along with dancing and binge-eating. Oliver Cromwell outlawed English Christmas consecrations and melodies, as did early American Puritans in Boston and Dutch Calvinists who considered the vulgar materialistic hullabaloo to either be agnostic, Roman Catholic, or pagan. It is widely accepted by scholars that December 25th was assumedly not Jesus Christ's birth date as proclaimed by Pope Julius I, who was trying to Christianize irreligious extols of the Brumal Interval. Jesus was likely born in June based on the position of the star the Magi of Bethlehem followed, which in all probability was the planet Uranus. By the way, the Bible never pointedly says that there were only three wise men. It merely mentions three Balthazar of Arabia, Melchior of Persia, and Gaspar of India, and their benefactions of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Following the American Revolution, Christmas kind of faded away as it was viewed as a British constitute. In fact, the First Continental Congress worked on Christmas Day. It didn't become an official U.S. holiday until the year that Charles Dickens died, 1870, owing greatly to his popular novel, A Christmas Carol, which, if you haven't read in its totality, you should. So much detail is left out of or changed in the cabillions of retellings of the parable since its promulgation. For example, in the hardcover... Scrooge does not sup with Bob Cratchit's family at the end, but rather his nephew Fred. So beloved was his oft-parodied tale and powerful the journey of characters that a local factory owner bequeathed each of his workers with the turkey and Christmas Day off after hearing Dickens read the admonitory allegory aloud in Boston or Boztown, as he would say. On the topic of Christmas carols, I love them. Not year-round, but I don't get sick of them in December as myriads of folks do. Especially loathed, according to polls, I don't find it so bad, is Sir Paul McCartney's Simply Having a Wonderful Christmas Time which nets him roughly half a million dollars each year in royalties. I find We Wish You a Merry Christmas, initially a threat hymn, canticized by servants to their masters, demanding some drinks and figgy-fricking pudding, to be a far more insufferable refrain, as well as the over-satirized Twelve Days of Christmas 
with the exception of Frank Sinatra's version made up of, quote, five ivory combs, four mission lights, three golf clubs, two silken scarves, and a most lovely lavender tie, end quote. My personal favorite casinet is I'll Be Home for Christmas, as it rings true to my living 1,500 miles away from my family. Scatter curiosity, Yuletide favorites Winter Wonderland, Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire, and I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas were all written by Jews. And maybe the most crowd-pleasing Christmas ditty, Jingle Bells, was originally entitled One Horse Open Sleigh as a Thanksgiving song. And the Paramount to be broadcast from space on board Gemini 6 in 1965. Frosty the Snowman is not a Christmas shanty either, but gets confused for one due to the Rankin-Bass animated special with Jimmy Durante that changed the end lyric from, quote, I'll be back again someday, end quote, to, quote, I'll be back on Christmas Day, end quote. Frosty was recorded on the coattails of Gene Autry's rendition of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer in 1949, who was added to the lore a decade prior by the Montgomery Ward Company. The Chicago Cortege was purchasing and selling coloring books and wanted to have their own oddity to avoid licensing fees, and tasked Robert Lewis with creating a Christmas miracle about a reindeer nearly branded Rollo or Reginald, whose origin story is summed up in a neat two-minute chant by Johnny Marks. Confusing erudition to Rudolph's lineage is difficult to qualify thanks to the best-known claymation special that cast Donner as Rudolph's father, and a 1998 movie that names Blitzen as Rudolph's father, appropriating Comet, Cupid, and Dasher as his uncles. And not to ruin the necromancy of the sleigh leader's embarkation fable, but scientists in Norway surmise that Rudolph's glowing nose is presumptively caused by a, quote, parasitic infection of his respiratory system, end quote. But try putting that lyric into a song. However, both Frosty and Rudolph would be nothing without the Christmas figure that is sung about the most, after Jesus Christ, Santa Claus who enjoys specific mention in Here Comes Santa Claus, Up on the Housetop, Backdoor Santa, Santa Wants Some Lovin', I Believe in Father Christmas, Bizarre Christmas Incident, Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree, Boogie Woogie Santa Claus, Jolly Old St. Nicholas, My Only Wish This Year, Don't Shoot Me Santa, Little St. Nick, Donde Esta Santa Claus, the little boy that Santa Claus forgot, the night Santa went crazy, Santa baby, everybody's waiting for the man with the bag, oh Santa, the man with all the toys, Father Christmas, Moses versus Santa Claus, must be Santa, old toy trains, Santa's beard, Santa and the satellite, Santa baby, Santa bring my baby back, Santa Claus and his old lady, Santa Claus is a black man. Santa Claus is coming to town. Santa Claus is definitely here to stay. Santa Claus Lane. Santa tell me why. Santa, you are the one. Santa's a fat bitch. Santa's coming for us. Santa's list. There ain't no Santa Claus on the evening stage. Santa looked a lot like daddy. And I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus which every time I hear the Jackson 5 version with little Michael at the end saying, I did, I really did see Mommy kissing Santa Claus, and I'm going to tell my dad. 
I just picture Joe Jackson beating the crap out of Chris Kringle, and I laugh out loud in the store like a crazy person. Grab a cup of eggnog and tune the boob tube to the fireplace channel while we get to know everyone's favorite generous 1,700-year-old, Sinter Wodon Kringle Claws. St. Nicholas of Myra, part of the Byzantine Empire in what is modern-day Turkey, was a 4th-century Greek bishop and the most revered non-biblical pietist, renowned for giving to the underprivileged. One momentous incident was his helping three poor sanctimonious sisters with substantial dowries by filling their hosiery, or stockings, with gold to help them avoid a course of prostitution. Assuming the form of a devout Christian early in his cycle, he is greatly portrayed as a bristled clergyman in canonical robes, notably in the Netherlands, Germany, Belgium, and Austria. But if you want to visit his tomb today, you'll have to go to Italy. All the way back in 1087, the Italian city of Bari had an objective to locate the grave of St. Nick, and Venetian mariners of the First Crusade brought that sortie to fruition. The Church of San Nicolo Alido was built to hold all the other treasures that came along with the half-skeleton they seized. Makes sense. St. Nicholas is the patron saint of seafarers, pirating, thievery, butchery, archers, pawnbrokers, banking, royalty, orphans, and children. St. Nicholas is also the beatified soul of Amsterdam and New Amsterdam, a.k.a. New York City, and is derivative of the apocryphal Sinterklaas of Belgium and the Netherlands. Santa is an entirely different entity appointed de Kurtzman, the Christmas man, in Dutch, and Père Noël, Father Christmas, in French. But Sinterklaas is the guy that evokes excitedness on December 5th and December 6th, Sinterklaas Eve and Sinterklaas Day. Sinterklaas doesn't have elves, but rather Zwart Piet, Black Peter, Sinterklaas's helper or slave, who is habitually delineated by Caucasians in blackface. Disagreeable brats are told that Peter will take them from their homes to Spain, where Sinterklaas lives, unless the Hellions clean up their act. In an attempt to make the eccentric more politically correct, the mythology has altered Zwart Pete to the occupation of a soot-covered chimney sweep to explain his connection to Sinterklaas and also the blackface makeup. In Hungary, ankle-biters also acquire handouts on December 6th if they are well-behaved, and a resplendent birch switch if they are unvirtuous. Scatter curiosity, on December 6th, 1492, Christopher Columbus baptized a Haitian port for St. Nicholas. Some believe that Santa has roots with the Germanic deity Wodan, who led the hunt of Wintertide in the polytheistic marvel of Yule. Antecedent to Christianity emerging as the dominant religious factor, they would jubilate this period where ghostly happenings and supernatural events occur, like a procession of phantoms in the sky. Wodan... Odin, to the Norse and Vikings, would lead the chase, 
sometimes taking the alias Jolner, Yule figure, or Langobar, Longbeard. Wodon wears a blue hooded cloak and dons a protracted blanched Van Dyke and rides nightly on his eight-footed gray horse, Sleepnir. The idea of Santa gaining access by agency of the fireplace also finds its descent with Norse customs, where Odin would enter dwellings by dint of fire holes and smokestacks in the interim of the solstice. And early accounts of St. Nicholas have him lobbing coins through a window, but when he finds them locked, he instead tosses them down the chimney. The painting The Feast of St. Nicholas by Dutch artist Jan Steen rendered both adults and youths looking up the vent with wonder as the tots enjoy their new trifles. The hearth was prepended to be a numinous portal for elves and fairies to bring tributes to mortals. The autonym Santa Claus entered the lexicon via the American press as an anglicized version of Sinterklaas, and again by Washington Irving in his 1809 History of New York. It was at this point that St. Nicholas shed his pontiff's clothes and began to be represented as a stout Dutch sailor biting a pipe in a green-colored coat. Interestingly enough, Irving's folio was actually meant to be making fun of Dutch culture in New York with his portraiture of Sinterklaas. Guess that one didn't turn out the way he planned, huh? About a decade later, a codex titled A New Year's Present to the Little Ones from 5 to 12 was published in New York and held in it an anonymously written poem, Old Santa Claus with Much Delight. An anecdote about Santa Claus riding in on a reindeer sleigh bringing bounties to youngsters. Another unsigned poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas, was a huge part of the December 23, 1823 Sentinel divulgation in Troy, New York. But you may know it better by a different name, The Night Before Christmas. In it, the assignment that Santa catalogs naughty and nice teeny boppers, ruling that obedient cherubs receive playthings, and noxious ones earn a lump of coal. A pretty sweet handout for a destitute family suffering the Little Ice Age. This is where we procured the chubby and plump right jolly old elf stuff, along with the little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly depictions, despite the fact that he had a miniature sleigh driven by a convoy of eight Tiny Reindeer. Dasher, Dancer, Prancer, Vixen, Comet, Cupid, Dunder, and Blixum. The last two being Dutch words for thunder and lightning. They were later changed to the more Germanic-sounding Donner and Blitzen. The specs of Santa largely go as follows. A silvery-haired, bespectacled, blithesome old man who is, let us say, large, with an enduring frosted beard, wearing a red coat trimmed with alabaster wrist cuffs and the pants to match, like one of LL Cool J's leisure suits from the 80s, minus the Gilligan hat. Accessories are made up of a black leather belt, boots, and a bottomless sack of recompense for the seven and a half billion people on Earth to be dispensed in just one miraculous evening. Assisted by the insurmountable organizational skills his elves must possess to build all of the baubles in their North Pole workshop. His catchphrase, ho, 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 is oftentimes buttoned with Merry Christmas to all and to all a good night. 
The father of the American cartoon, caricature artist Thomas Nast, is commonly recognized as creating the doctrine that Santa hails from the North Pole with his elucidation for Harper's Weekly, Santa Claus and His Works, showcasing Santa Clausville, NP, North Pole. He also embellished a picture of Santa wrapped in an American flag holding a puppet named Jeff. As it was 1863 and the North and South were still exchanging Civil War blows. Jeff refers to Jefferson Davis, President of the Confederate States of America. While Nast is generally deferred as designing the modern Santa Claus off Germany's Sankt Nicholas and Weihnachtsmann and the Republican Elephant, he is wrongly imputed with inventing Uncle Sam and the Democratic Donkey. Born in Germany, his father sent the household to the Big Apple when he was six years old. He was raised Catholic, converted to Protestantism, and grew staunchly anti-Irish and anti-Catholic because he saw the church as a presage to American scruples. He disregarded Irish to be ignorant savage drunks that bullied African Americans, which is assuredly what he would have witnessed growing up in his Manhattan neighborhood. Sympathetic to black, Chinese, and Native Americans, Thomas pushed for abolition, denied segregation, and hated the Ku Klux Klan. He was adamant about taking down boss William Mager Tweed, the commissioner of New York City Public Works who controlled state labor and had been paying off constituents for years. Tammany Hall wanted a tax to fund parochial Catholic schools, prompting Nast to retaliate with his art. The corrupt organization was so spooked that they sent Thomas a $100,000 bribe to back off and go study in Europe. Nast negotiated for $500,000, heretofore deciding, quote, Well, I don't think I'll do it. I made up my mind not long ago to put some of those fellows behind bars. End quote. Boss Tweed was arrested attempting to flee to Cuba, fingered by use of one of Nast's sketches, which were so influential as to help war-torn incumbent Abraham Lincoln get re-elected by painting his opponent, George McClellan, to be pro-South for wanting to make peace in the nation. Nast worked for Harper's Weekly for 25 years in the mid to late 1800s, and his political lampooning was seen as a boon to the Union cause. Lincoln praised Nast as, quote, our best recruiting sergeant, end quote. Their mutual congenial friend, Ulysses S. Grant, said he won the election of 1868 by, quote, the sword of Sheridan and the pencil of Thomas Nast, end quote. And upon Grant's re-election, Mark Twain wrote Thomas, stating, quote, Nast, you more than any other man have won a prodigious victory for Grant. I mean, rather, for civilization and progress, end quote. Thomas Nast also drew for the campaign of Rutherford B. Hayes, who labeled the artist, quote, the most powerful single-handed aid he had, end quote. Thomas would come to abhor Hayes and the Republican Party, denying endorsement to James A. Garfield's bid for president, in addition to James G. Blaine, and converting to a mugwump, a Republican that switched sides, to assist Grover Cleveland in becoming the first Democrat to be elected in three decades. Mark Twain turned Mugwump too. Nass departing Harper's Weekly submission was Christmas Illustrations, followed by Thomas Nass Christmas Drawings for the Human Race, 
scattered curiosity, there used to be a Thomas Nast Award, but it has been determined that Thomas, quote, exhibited an ugly bias against immigrants, the Irish, and Catholics, end quote. As a result, Nast's name was recently removed from the trophy. It is for these reasons that some think the word nasty is a play on his last name. It is not. Nasty had been around for centuries prior to his era. But no publication sealed Santa's permanence as the September 21st, 1897 editorial in the New York Sun titled, Is There a Santa Claus? holding the acclaimed response, Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. Here is her message and the response in its entirety. Quote, Dear Editor, I am eight years old. Some of my friends say that there is no Santa Claus. Papa says, if you see it in the sun, it's so. Please tell me the truth. Is there a Santa Claus? Virginia O'Hanlon, 115 West 95th Street. Virginia, your little friends are wrong. They have been affected by the skepticism of a skeptical age. They do not believe except they see. They think that nothing can be which is not comprehensible by their little minds. All minds, Virginia, whether they be men's or children's, are little. In this great universe of ours, man is a mere insect, an ant. In his intellect, as compared with the boundless world about him, as measured by the intelligence capable of grasping the whole truth and knowledge. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. He exists as certainly as love and generosity and devotion exist. And you know that they abound and give to your life its highest beauty and joy. Alas, how dreary would the world be if there was no Santa Claus? it would be as dreary as if there were no Virginias. There would be no childlike faith, then no poetry, no romance to make tolerable this existence. We should have no enjoyment except in sense and sight. The external light with which childhood fills the world would be extinguished. Not believe in Santa Claus, you might as well not believe in fairies. You might get your papa to hire men to watch in all the chimneys on Christmas Eve to catch Santa Claus, but even if you did not see Santa Claus coming down, what would that prove? Nobody sees Santa Claus, but that is no sign that there is no Santa Claus. The most real things in the world are those that neither children nor men can see. Did you ever see fairies dancing on the lawn? Of course not but that's no proof that they are not there. Nobody can conceive or imagine all the wonders that are unseen and unseeable in the world. You tear apart the baby's rattle and see what makes the noise inside, but there is a veil covering the unseen world, which not the strongest man, nor even the untied strength of all the strongest men that ever lived could tear apart. Only faith, poetry, love, Romance can push aside that curtain and view and picture the supernal beauty and glory beyond. Is it all real? Ah, Virginia, in all this world, there is nothing else real and abiding. No Santa Claus, thank God, he lives and lives forever. A thousand years from now, Virginia, nay, ten times, ten thousand years from now, he will continue to make glad the heart of childhood. End quote. Though a moribund form of dissemination, scientists have studied puerile memorandums to Santa Claus and found that girls, on the whole, write lengthier dispatches with the polite tone of the Christmas spirit and even make remittances for other people unlike a majority of their selfish male counterparts who get right to their ultimatums. An interesting point to bethink is that a correspondence with Santa is presumably the primogenial letter that any kid writes and is a perfect opportunity to teach them the skill, 
even as we slowly parlay the United States Postal Service, maybe even in their lifetime. Male persons and volunteers answer communiques written to Santa if postmarked by December 10th and addressed as follows. North Pole Holiday Postmark Postmaster 4141 Postmark Drive Anchorage, Alaska 99530 America isn't the only country who does this. H0H0H0 is Canada's postal code for Santa, who, according to them, lives within their jurisdiction of the North Pole. Canada's Minister of Citizenship, Immigration, and Multiculturalism made Santa Claus a Canadian citizen, stating, quote, The government of Canada wishes Santa the very best in his Christmas Eve duties and wants to let him know that, as a Canadian citizen, he has the automatic right to re-enter Canada once his trip around the world is complete. End quote. Nordic countries also assert Santa to be a Denzian of their lands. Finland claims Santa is part of their tribe, backed by two amusement esplanades for street cred, Santa Park and Santa Claus Village. In the United Kingdom, letters to Santa aren't mailed, but rather, blokes burn the Christmas dispatch so it can magically be blown to the North Pole by wind. Similarly, in prevalent Latin American countries and Mexico, niños attach their epistles to helium-filled balloons and release them to the heavens. An association with Santa Claus that I never knew? In 1902, Lyman Frank Baum, yes, the author of The Wizard of Oz, wrote a bestseller titled The Life and Adventures of Santa Claus, in which... Baum denominates Santa Neclaus, who has an aggregation of 10 non-flying reindeer that jump in a very high flight-like manner to help him out in the Laughing Valley of Ho-Ha-Ho. Ack, a master woodsman, shows Santa all the suffering outside of Laughing Valley, which prompts Neclaus to find a way to bring joy to all the juveniles on Earth by inventing toys. Santa also crops up in Baum's Road to Oz, where he appears as a guest to Ozma's birthday party, entering to the heraldry of, quote, the most mighty and loyal friend to children, His Supreme Highness Santa Claus, end quote. A much fancier title than King of the Kitties bestowed upon him in 1924 at the conclusion of the very first Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, which is tied with Detroit as having staged the second oldest Thanksgiving parade in the United States, beaten by Philadelphia a year prior. Macy's employees traipsed along the procession route with marching bands, floats, and animals on loan from the Central Park Zoo. In 1928, the giant balloons were simply let go to the skies at the terminus and popped shortly thereafter. The pursuing year, the inflated joyances were built to last a few days and affixed with an address to mail it back. Whoever did so got a gift from Macy's. The Jubilee paused in the seam of 1942 to 1944 for World War II rubber and helium rationing. The Salvation Army, whose colors are also red and white, helped the mythology of Santa being a philanthropist by utilizing volunteers to embody his persona out in front of Macy's to raise money for the penniless. Department Depot Santas who collected for charities and visited with young ones were a well-established practice since James Edgar started doing it with his helper elves, i.e. staff members, 
at his business in Brockton, Massachusetts years earlier. One of my favorite books relating to the topic is this awesome stocking stuffer that I once got called Scared of Santa, a pictorial collection of whimpering striplings being put on the lap of a man in a ho-ho tuxedo to spout a list of yuletide cravings. It's hilarious. And I've always found this to be a weird and creepy praxis. What's the saying? Don't meet your heroes? I mean, with mall Santas, you never quite know what you're gonna get. Which is why, in the 1930s, the Charles W. Howard Santa School, the oldest continuously running Santa School on Earth, was opened to train prospective Père Noëls for cavalcades and in-store installments. Charles Howard himself was a former department store Santa. If you are really serious, you can earn a degree titled Master of Santa Claus at the International School of Santa Claus. There's also the Fraternal Order of Real Bearded Santas, where they learn how to field some of the curveball questions thrown at them, like, how fast is your sleigh? How much do you weigh? How do you get in our house? We don't have a chimney. Is my brother or sister on the naughty list? What do you do if a naughty kid asks for coal? What makes Rudolph's nose shine, and why can't it be green? How do you travel the world in one night? Why do you have the same wrapping paper as my mom? Can I have a puppy? Is your beard real? Can you bring my grandpa back from the dead? Do you remember me? How many elves are there? Do you work for Coca-Cola? A question that even grown-ups have been wondering since Haddon Sumblum's 1930s vignettes for Coca-Cola's Christmas squibs. And if you close your eyes for a second and think about it, I'm sure you can recall in your memory banks one of the copious images of Santa enjoying a refreshing Coke, prompting the urban legend that Coca-Cola invented Santa Claus to promote the sugary beverage, and that is why he dons scarlet and white, the retinue's colors, rather than the time-honored green that Father Christmas displays. I'll debunk that theory for you right now with the fact that White Rock Beverages used a crimson and pearl-clad Santa in their promulgations for mineral water in 1915 and also ginger ale in 1923 in front of Coca-Cola. And even ahead of that, Santa appeared in garnet and white on uncounted covers of Puck magazine, amid the primordial days of the 20th century. Here's a great Christmas potboiler you might not have heard. In 1955, the Sears Roebucks in Colorado Springs circulated a phone number so little darlings could call the man in red on Christmas Eve using the Santa hotline. But there was a typo printed, leading nestlings to instead call Conad or the Continental Air Defense Command. Phone calls were handled by the Director of Operations, Colonel Harry Shoup, who told the Tykes that Santa was on his radar traveling south from the North Pole. I'm not so sure if the same mistake were to happen today that the Colonel would be so savvy. I'd like to believe that they would be. NORAD Santa tracking has endured ever since. Nowadays, various different organizations and websites pursue Santa, providing the side benefit of helping squirts learn about geography and space technologies. And brings about an interesting point that is contentious amongst progenitors everywhere, and that is, is it right to hoodwink children about Santa's actuality. They look to us for guidance, advice, and trust what we disclose to be true. Do we screw them up by engaging in this ruse for 8 to 12 years of their pupillage and then turning around and revealing what up? I'm not sure. I don't recall when I figured it all out, 
But I also don't have memory of being angry with my parents for deceiving me either. Cornell University did a study on the topic, and over 500 urchins claimed that none of them were angry at their guardians for this falsehood. In fact, legions of them felt validated, as if now they were a big kid who knows something that little kids don't. A total power play. Now, up until this point in our Santa Chronicles, we have not yet mentioned his wife, who, by the way, doesn't even have a conclusive sobriquet other than Mrs. Claus. She premiered in Catherine Lee Bates' 1889 poem, Goody Santa Claus on a Sleigh Ride, which reveals the couple's bonbon-growing conifer, rainbow chickens that lay Easter eggs, and a conte of her joining Santa for the Christmas run to dish out oblations. Most often portrayed as plump and old, like Santa, when shown as younger, she almost always has red hair. Santa's better half has been christened by varying authors with matronymics like Anya, Anna, Nancy, Samantha, Annette, Margaret, Sarah, Jessica, Mary, Maya, Martha, Anwin, and Layla. Other works in conjunction with Mrs. Claus are the chorale Mrs. Santa Claus and the tomes How Mrs. Santa Claus Saved Christmas, Mrs. Santa Claus Militant, The Great Adventure of Mrs. Santa Claus, A Bit of Applause for Mrs. Santa Claus, Mrs. Santa Claus Takes a Vacation, and Annalena, The Untold Story of Mrs. Santa Claus. According to sources I found, the first film she appears in is the 1964 classic Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, a terrible piece of cinema featuring a young Pia Zadora that has been lovingly riffed by Mystery Science Theater 3000. Growing up, my brother, sister, and I would always leave milk and cookies out for Santa, accompanied by some carrots for the reindeer. Pretty common in North America. Worldwide, treats vary. Australia and Britain frequently replace the milk and cookies with beer or sherry in mince pies, yum. In Sweden, Denmark, and Norway, neonates leave out cinnamon-sprinkled porridge, yuck. In Ireland, Santa McClaws secures a Guinness and some Christmas pudding, awesome. And Dutch Moppets fill shoes with hay and carrots and put them out for Sinterklaas's horse. Another tradition from my childhood that comes from the German side of my family is the ritual of hiding a glass pickle in the tree on Christmas Eve, earning whoever finds it in the morning a special prize. Germany gets full kudos for the inception of Christmas trees. German monk Martin Luther, who we covered in our Halloween episode a few months back, was a pioneer in decorating evergreens with candles, delighting his descendants in its flickering light. Today, there are zoos that will take your old withering Christmas trees to feed to certain animals, as they are apparently chock full of vitamin C, unlike the poisonous, prettified, parasitic plant, mistletoe, which druids thought to be sacred and venerated in their ritual of oak and mistletoe as it provides fruit in the cold season when everything else perishes, suggesting virility. Romans put it over doorways as a protectorate of their villas where it radiated love, understanding, and peace. And Christians hang it to insulate their lives from demons, banshees, witches, and its fertile generative qualities led to the convention of kissing beneath it. In 18th century England, 
a man could smooch any woman standing under mistletoe, and if she refused, bad luck would supervene. After each osculation, a berry is to be removed until the plant is bare. Thus, no more lip-locking. But don't eat it. Mistletoe is pernicious and can cause nausea, blurred vision, diarrhea, vomiting, hypertension, and seizures. But the risk is found at more dangerous levels in the leaves than the berries, expressly if made into tea, that has been used throughout the ages to heal epilepsy, arthritis, infertility, and high blood pressure. The poinsettia, or Christmas flower, is also repudiated to be virulent, but is assuredly safe to have in your comorency. It hails from Mexico. Aztecs used it for dye. Poinsettias became a Christmas motif in the 16th century when a girl named Pepita, or possibly Maria, was too poverty-stricken to give Jesus an offering and... An angel told her to collect weeds to put at the foot of her church's altar, which ominously grew fuchsia leaves and turned into a poinsettia when Pepita obeyed. The star shape on the leaf is meant to symbolize the star of Bethlehem, and the magenta signifies the blood of Christ. The plant is erroneously thought to be toxic and could really only kill a child if they were to eat 500 leaves. And on the topic of dying, let me say that I respectfully disagree with Bruce Willis, who claims that Die Hard isn't a Christmas movie. I mean, John McClane thwarted Hans Gruber's attempt to rob $640 million in bonds from the Nakatomi Corporation during its holiday party, and the end credits swell to the tune of Let It Snow. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfuckers, and to all a good night. coming, please rate us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to visit scatteredcuriosities.com for exclusive free downloads and to donate to the show.